You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to work our way from verse 32 through the first 16 verses of chapter 5. Strategies and secrets for church growth abound. In fact, here is just a small sampling of article titles. The number one secret of church growth. Seven keys to church growth. Six secrets to church growth. Five things that won't make your church grow, despite what you may think. Seven ways to grow your church attendance. Eight ways to make your church grow, dash, the ultimate guide, all caps. The strategic church, the secret to success. And then finally... 14 practices of fast-growing churches. You get the idea. Now, not everything listed in each of these articles was bad. Some of them did actually make an attempt to reference the Bible. But no one highlighted our text this morning and drew principles for church growth from the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Friends, God is sovereign. He will grow his church and he will do it in perfect holiness and impeccable righteousness. And this simply cannot be turned into a human strategy. In fact, there is no human strategy that can truly grow a church because the church is created and sustained gathered and grown by the sovereign will and divine power of God alone. He will do it how He wants, when He wants, and where He wants. Did you catch the amazing strategy Darren laid out last week for how the gospel is flourishing among migrant communities in Greece? No, you didn't. Because there isn't one. The triune God is working in power, drawing sinners to faith in Christ. God is doing this in His way, by His power, for His glory. And this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because this is what we see from the very beginning. God grows His church by His power for His glory. And here's the role each individual believer and the church collectively plays in this. We declare the gospel and we demonstrate the gospel. That's it. 
Empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, the people of God declare the gospel of God, demonstrate the love of God, all for the glory of God, and the church grows. This is what we've seen so far in Acts, isn't it? After the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, the gathered multitude begins to hear in their own language the mighty works of God. That's chapter 2, verse 11. Peter then preaches the gospel with boldness. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 36. The people hear the message of Jesus and they are cut to the heart, believing the gospel and being baptized. Chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. So the gospel is declared, then what happens? The gospel is demonstrated. These brand new believers are giving evidence of their new belief by their new behavior. They are demonstrating and displaying in practical ways the truth that has captured their hearts. That's verses 42 through 47 of chapter 2. Their lives are marked by selfless love, sacrificial care, a shared confession, and a sure hope in Jesus. The gospel is declared and demonstrated. It's recorded again in chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested for declaring the gospel. Look at verse 2. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The next day they do the same thing, verses 10 through 12. Finally, they're released and they return to their fellow believers for a time of prayer and worship. And then what do we find at the end of chapter 4? The gospel has been declared. Now, the gospel is demonstrated. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Friends, this is so important. We cannot be a people who declare the love of Jesus but never demonstrate it. And we cannot be a people who demonstrate the love of Jesus in tangible ways, but fail to be bold in declaring the love of Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ must do both. This is what we've talked about often over the last two years. It's what Ray Ortland again, calls gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Let me offer you his explanation again. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace as Jesus himself touches us through his truths. Without the doctrines, the culture alone is fragile. Without the culture, the doctrines alone appear pointless. 
but the New Testament binds doctrine and culture together. And then he gives us examples. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. The doctrine of regeneration creates a culture of humility. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. The doctrine of justification creates a culture of inclusion. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. The doctrine of reconciliation creates a culture of peace. Romans 6, 20 through 23. The doctrine of sanctification creates a culture of life. Romans 5, verse 2. The doctrine of glorification creates a culture of hope. 1 John 1, 5 through 10, the doctrine of God creates a culture of honesty. If we want this culture to thrive, Ortland writes, we can't take doctrinal shortcuts. If we want this doctrine to be credible, we can't downplay the culture. But churches where the doctrine and the culture converge as one bear living witness to the power of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is what we find in the early church. And this is what we desperately want to become true of Redeemer more and more. A church that declares and demonstrates the gospel in all of its majestic fullness. So I want you to see how this plays out in our text this morning. First, I want you to see the gospel is demonstrated through sacrificial generosity. The gospel is demonstrated through sacrificial generosity. The gospel has been declared to the people. Many have received it. The community of faith is growing. And one of the hallmarks of this growing church from its earliest days is this sacrificial generosity generosity. Listen to the text again, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So think about it. Think about it. These are new believers. These are new believers. They weren't discipled for years, having their hands slowly pried off of their possessions. Now, this is an immediate and natural response to the gift they had received in Christ. Now, why was this the case? What was it that prompted this sort of sacrificial giving? I think this is where we all need to be confronted by God's Word. I want you to think about what happened to Jesus in Luke 7 and the subsequent lesson He taught. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. You've heard the story. One of the Pharisees asked Him to eat with Him, and He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus does. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's 20 months of wages, and the other 50, that's two months of wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Let's apply the same principle to our text. Sacrificial generosity is the fruit of profound forgiveness. Sacrificial generosity is the fruit of profound forgiveness. Jesus is teaching that the more you grasp the depth of your sin and the sheer magnitude of God's reconciling love, the more generous you will be. Lavish love and overwhelming grace received produces extreme generosity. Lavish love and overwhelming grace received produces extreme generosity. Think about the Apostle Paul's encouragement toward generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we we talk a lot about what it means to be a gospel-centered church. We focus on good doctrine, which we should, and rich music, and our freedom in Christ, and we occasionally even take shots at how terrible legalistic fundamentalism is, and we can articulate the gospel in all its beauty and explain what's wrong with other churches. But friends, if this church, if this church isn't marked by 
sacrificial generosity, then we don't get the gospel very well at all. And I'm not just talking about financial generosity. Generosity is tied to need. In the early church, the primary need was financial. And while all churches for all time have need of financial support to accomplish the mission of God, let's not limit our generosity to the financial realm. Are the needs present at Redeemer being met by the generosity of the members of Redeemer? Are the needs of Redeemer members met by the loving generosity of other Redeemer members? Again, there are always and will always be financial needs. But what about the need for prayer or the need for an encouraging phone call or the need for an open conversation over coffee? Friends, are you motivated? Are you marked by gospel-motivated generosity? Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your talents? Are you generous with your energy? Are you generous with your possessions? challenge of the text pushes us toward generosity, but I don't want you to get the idea that this isn't already happening at Redeemer in astonishing ways. There is not a week that goes by, especially lately, that someone doesn't stop me on Sunday morning or send me an email or send me a text message to let me know just how loving and generous this church has been. I'm hearing all the time about unexpected financial gifts and the provision of meals for weeks at a time for those enduring difficulty and change. I've, I've marveled at the time some of you have sacrificed to walk with your brothers and sisters through their suffering. Friends, this is what a gospel-centered church looks like. We gather week after week to declare the redeeming work of Jesus through sermons and songs and the sacraments, but then our weeks are filled with countless demonstrations of the love of Jesus through sacrificial generosity. May this only blossom and grow with each passing week. Now, sacrificial generosity didn't just generally mark the early church, but Luke gives us a specific example. Look at verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
I love that the text offers us someone with a name. It draws attention to a very particular act. He sold a field that belonged to him. This text makes it clear that the field belonged to Barnabas. He didn't have to sell it, but he chose to. He chose to because someone needed the money his property would yield more than he needed the property. Clearly, he understood that everything he had was a gift from God anyway, so he saw his property, he saw his property fundamentally as a means of glorifying Jesus by serving others. Is that how you view what God has given to you? God has given this, whatever this is, this to me to glorify him by serving others in some way. So what did he do after he made the sale? He laid the money at the apostles' feet, meaning meaning he relinquished his rightful claim on the money and made it clear that it should be used for the benefit of someone else, someone who didn't have the means to help themselves. Friends, what does that sound like? It sounds like a demonstration of the gospel. In fact, think about the actions of Barnabas here in relation to Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those who could not help themselves. Now, lest we think that the early church was perfect, we move into chapter 5. Set against the example of Barnabas is a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. In Barnabas, we saw the gospel demonstrated through sacrificial generosity, but in Ananias and Sapphira, we see the gospel clarified through severe discipline. We see the gospel clarified through severe discipline. Look at verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did, I not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Or we could say this way, How is it that you have agreed together to taunt God? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So the story here is pretty straightforward. So let me explain this devastating situation involving the death of a husband and a wife by answering three questions. What was their sin? How did this happen? Why was it such a big deal? What was their sin? Like Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira owned a piece of land. It was really and rightfully theirs. And they were under no obligation at all to sell it. They could have kept their land. They could have enjoyed that land. They could have hosted bonfires and ice cream socials. It was their land. But here is where the comparison in the text potentially shed some light on their motivation. Imagine you're in the same church as this guy named Joseph and you witness his love and generosity and all the attention he's getting and then he gets a great nickname. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Perhaps a little jealousy creeps up in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. They, they begin to think we... We would like that kind of attention. We would like that kind of honor. Maybe, maybe we'll even get nicknames. So they decide to do what Barnabas did. They sell their land. But then they make an incredibly foolish decision. Verse 1, with his wife's knowledge... Ananias keeps some of the money. Again, again, he had every right to not sell the land or to sell it and only give some of the money. But what he couldn't do is lie. Friend, this was a blatant act of rebellion against God. Look at the end of verse 4. You have not lied to man, but to God. It's reminiscent of the words of Psalm 51. David says, against you 
and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. This reminds us of the nature of sin. Ananias pretended to give everything when he only gave a part. He wanted to appear to be as generous and self-sacrificing as Barnabas. He was seeking human praise more than the praise of God. John Stott writes, the apostles' complaint was not that they lacked honesty, bringing only a part of the sale price, but that they lacked integrity. Bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They wanted credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Stock concludes, their motive in giving, listen to this, their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Brothers and sisters, this is how the devil works. In fact, this is the answer to the second question. How did this happen? Well, look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You know this. The language of filling is most often associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But rather than yielding to the control of the Holy Spirit, Ananias gave into temptation. His heart was filled with deceit and hypocrisy, and he willingly became an instrument of evil in the hand of Satan. Let me say this as simply as I can. Satan is really good at what he does. Satan is really good at what he does, and we all need to understand that. He's subtle and crafty. He doesn't take vacations. He's always on the clock. He takes good things. Giving. Being generous. He takes good things and he twists them into evil distortions that only cause pain and division and destruction. In fact, James describes what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. The desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth Death. So what was their sin? How did this happen? Why was it such a big deal? Theologian David Peterson suggests that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira 
was an attack on the unity and holiness of the church. When Ananias lied to Peter and the church, it was a sin against the Spirit who creates, fills, and sustains the church. Friends, God acts in judgment. God acts in judgment because He will preserve the holy identity and character of His church. This is why he disciplines and why he has commanded the church to discipline unrepentant members because God has established the church to reflect his glory to the world and he will not sit passively by while his name is mocked and his character is twisted and his holiness is compromised. He won't do it. So he acts in severe discipline. But he does it to clarify the gospel. He does it to clarify the gospel. Here's what I mean. It's as if he says, through this severe act of discipline, no, this is not what the gospel produces. The fruit of my redeeming love is not dishonesty and deceit. So again, let me be clear. God's discipline, even when severe, is fundamentally an act of love. He says to the early church, I want something better for you. I want something better for you, and I want something better for the nations that I will reach through your witness. And so my gospel must be crystal clear. In both declaration and demonstration. The early church is marked by sacrificial generosity, but it also experiences severe discipline. Finally, and very quickly, notice the gospel spreads by sovereign grace. Look at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What happens, what happens on the heels of this horrific act of judgment? 
Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. God disciplines his church so that his church will flourish again. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. Remember those articles I, I referenced when I began? None of them mentioned that sometimes God disciplines a church before he grows it. None of them did. Not a single one. The people of God witnessed the terrifying power of God, and they were filled with a new sense of awe and reverence for God. This is a divine wake-up call. Times of revival happen when God's holiness is revealed and God's people repent. Generosity and judgment is a strange recipe for church growth. But this is precisely what God did. And this is what God does. And I think it would be good for us to pause for a moment and consider our own story. Redeemer, there is no doubt, looking back, that God disciplined this church severely. But why? Why? He disciplined his people to awaken them so that he could use them for his glory. When John Piper preached here on September 2nd, 2014, he gave an overview of the book of Ruth, which is fresh in our minds. And he related it to the unexpected and devastating circumstances Redeemer was facing. In his conclusion, this is what he said. Ruth chapter 1. Famine, foreign country, foreign wives, barren marriage, dead husband, dead sons, and lost daughter-in-law. That's chapter 1, and that's where you live right now, Redeemer. And then he said this. I have no idea. I have no idea in God's providence how long God may keep you in chapter 1. I just know that however long He has you in chapter 1, doing the necessary painful work, don't begrudge Him. Say, if you have to, the Lord has dealt bitterly with us. Naomi said it, and it was true. But don't say it at the expense of even seeing Ruth, not even seeing the barley harvest. Don't say it to the exclusion of your confidence in the sovereignty of God. And then he concluded, He said, bear the mighty hand of God. Patiently trust his sovereignty. Look away to your Savior and his sovereign timing. 
and know that there is coming a day when this church is going to be more mighty in the Word of God, more mighty in the Holy Spirit, more mighty in fruitfulness in this city. So brothers and sisters, I've been here now for two years and I've watched something happen within you. The sense and weight of God's discipline is gone. And there is a freshness here, a warmth, a desire to sacrifice and serve. And and some of you, you're fighting for that. There's a renewed passion to reach the nations. A longing to be poured out for Jesus and his glory. But in God's kindness, he brought a bitter providence here. He severely disciplined this church because he loves this church. He did it so that his glory would shine even more brightly. And I believe it is. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your grace. though your grace is sometimes very uncomfortable, very difficult. You are good. You love Redeemer Bible Church more than any person sitting in this room. Your plan is better than any person's plan. We want to thank you. We want to thank you for your discipline. Thank you for loving us enough to awaken us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ongoing work. Thank you for the new brothers and sisters you have brought to us. Thank you for moving us toward each other, even though our hearts are so often filled with fear and apprehension. Remembering hurt and great difficulty. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving us toward each other. Thank you for restoring relationships. Thank you, Jesus, for never leaving us, never forsaking us. We want to be used individually and corporately by you, oh God. So please use us, broken and feeble as we are, please use us for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.